Winston Churchill, Judy Garland, Amy Winehouse and the Beatles all have at least one thing in common. They've all recorded at the famous Abbey Road Studios in St John's Wood, London. So much has been written about them. And now Abbey Road has its own biography. Three, number three, Abbey Road began life as an affluent suburban house and was converted into a recording studio more than 90 years ago. It's considered a place where musical magic is made. And legendary music journalist David Hepworth documents the 90-plus year history of music's hallowed grounds, including one Kiwi's role in breathing new life into old recordings. In his book, it's called Abbey Road, the inside story of the world's most famous recording studio. And David Hepworth joins me now. Hi. Hello. Nice to talk to you. Up to a 1,000 people a day visit Abbey Road to walk on that zebra crossing made famous by the Beatles, maybe to leave some graffiti on the wall. Uh, Most would be too young to remember the Beatles, I'm guessing. So what do you think still draws them to this London road? Well, that's an interesting question because I suppose it's the unique... Uh, iconic. It, it's a rather overused adjective nowadays. Iconic. But if you can't if you can't apply the word iconic <laughs> to the cover of Abbey Road, <laughs> where can you really? Uh, and it's an extraordinary example of the, the the kind of exceptionalism of the Beatles. You know, the story was that there was that was going to be their last album. Where they want to call it want to call it Everest. They wanted to go and have a picture taken at the top of Everest, <laughs> but that was never going to happen, was it, Ringo? And so they said, <laughs> instead, let's just go out on the zebra crossing. And they crossed the zebra three times, and I think they took a total of six pictures, and there's only one was usable. Uh, and and that was very much a kind of a dashed-off cover idea. But it ended up being the most memorable album cover of all time. And I suppose that is why people go there, because it's a unique it's a unique unique site in London in the sense that it's about the only place in London that hasn't changed at all in 60 years. You know, the, the, the buildings are still pretty much where they were, you know. So if you go down there and I, you know, if I go from the tube at St. John's Wood and you, you follow tourists and so forth going down Grove End Road and turning right into Abbey Road and you could hear their intake of breath <laughs> as, as they realise that this is looks just like just like the cover. So I suppose that is what uh, that's what draws people, really. It's, it's, it's the odd magic of the Beatles and that. That LP cover. So what was it like for you, a music journalist, to spend time in that fabled building? Well, it fascinates me because, you know, I was asked to do this because, and I I was keen to do it because I've always been interested in studios um, because I'm always interested in, in a sense of place. I always liked the idea that this is where this happened, you know, on yes. this this few square feet over here. Um, and Abbey Road is is uniquely well-placed to tell that story because it was, in many senses, the first full-service proper recording studio in the world when it was opened in huh. 1931. Yeah, because prior to that, people had recorded in concert halls, in churches, in hotel rooms or whatever, whereas this was was the first time 
that anybody had done this, that a company had done this. And then loads of other companies followed in its footsteps over the years. And so you started, you know, you had a Decca Record Studios and you had CBS New York and so forth. And then slowly, as recording has changed over the last 30 years, I suppose, those studios are pretty much all closed. And so Abbey Road has gone from being the first recording studio in the world to being arguably the last recording studio <laughs> in the world. Um, and because of its unique status as a um, cultural resource in the UK, and, uh, you know, it is listed, it's a listed building, not only is the building listed, so you can't interfere with it in any way, you can't sell it, you can't knock it down and stuff. Mm. Uh, but even the zebra crossing is the only listed zebra crossing in the United Kingdom. You can't move that at all. Uh, and so, you know, when it came under its current owners, Universal, when Universal bought EMI, they pretty much said the first thing they had to say was, uh, Abbey Road will remain and we will not, <laughs> you know, harm a hair on its head, uh, really. You know, so... So that was that was what made me wanted to do it, want to do it really, and I wanted to explore the idea of what a record is, because I think people have got a tendency to talk about records and songs as though they're kind of interchangeable terms, and I don't think they are. Mm. You know, I think a record, a record is a different thing. A record has qualities that a piece of music alone doesn't have. You know, a record has kind of atmosphere it has drama it can have gravitas you know kind of all these kind of qualities because it it's kind of it's cinematic in many senses really you know because what what record what people are trying to do with records is make you feel something and um and abbey road you know has been the home of a great deal of that work over the years you know so opened in 1931 largely as a classical uh, place, uh, you know, huge, great studio, um, which they built over the back garden of the place. Uh, and then a couple of other smaller studios, Studio One for kind of piano recitals and so forth. And then Studio Two, which was kind of the dance band studio in the 30s and 40s. And that's the place that the Beatles subsequently, you know, came into in 1962. And that's the place that is um, that is still most hallowed ground, I suppose, to this day. Yeah. Although all the studios are still functioning, although they they've had to adapt to changes in technology that have occurred over the years. But there's still a lot of people who go there to try and get that old old feeling, mm -hmm. you know. And you know the big studio, Studio One, is where they used to we still do loads of classical work, but that's nowadays where they record soundtrack music. And so nowadays when you have uh, video games which have uh, music budgets, the equal of feature films, they will they will have been there for weeks very often recording the music for a, for a video game. Uh, with a full orchestra, you know, so it's uh, it's having to respond to all those changes in the in the way that recordings are made all over the years, and, uh, and that's what it's had to do. I I should say by the way that when the Beatles recorded there, famously, it wasn't called Abbey Road Studios. That was a <laughs> that was something that was added in the nineteen seventies, almost as as a tribute to the Beatles, right? 
Definitely. I, I think it was actually the 80s. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, probably. Um, I guess it was called the EMI Recording Studios. Yeah. Or actually, initially, it was known as the Technical Department. <laughs> it's not very romantic at yeah, all. Yeah. And uh, and it's only, it was referred to as Abbey Road by the musicians who worked there, um, but not known as that to anybody else at all until after the until the until the Beatles in 1969 made made Abbey Road, and therefore Abbey Road itself became this extraordinary phenomenon. And Ken Townsend who took over the um, the management of the place in the early 80s when it was it was pretty much under threat. Really, you know, there were <laughs> those were the days when the big studio was out of use. And uh, and Pink Floyd used to go in there late at night, yeah. and uh, and fashion goals at either end of the studio, and play games of football in there in <laughs> in the giant studio because that was the best use for it. Anyway, Ken Townsend came up with loads of ideas to kind of revive it. One of them was making soundtrack music there. And the other one was, while we're at it, let's call it Abbey Road. Wow, that's amazing. That's, yeah. that's, a, pretty, that's a good day's work. <laughs> the day you decided to call it Abbey Road. I'm talking to um, legendary music journalist David Hepworth. His book is called Abbey Road, the inside story of the world's most famous recording studio. And just to linger on that pre-Beatles sort of life for a moment, did it change the way singers performed once they were recording for a recording rather than as a live performance that just happened to be recorded? Does that question make sense? Oh, de- definitely. I mean, the the, the, the major, the two big, uh, two big technological changes really are the electrical microphone, which comes along in the, in the 30s, and that changes the way that singers sing. So you start to get, you get Bing Crosby in the United States. You get Al Bowley in, in the United Kingdom. And what these people are doing is singing very confidentially. They're singing into your ear. They're not projecting. Yeah. So it's a very different form of singing from that that had, uh, you know, that had come along, that had been around in the, in the 20s and so forth. Where people used to sing through megaphones, effectively. These people were were confidential. They were... They were um, projecting their personality the other thing that changed it which came along just after the war as a as a consequence of captured german technology was um recording onto tape because prior to that it had been done direct to disc and of course if you recorded on tape you could edit uh and you could hear that at its best uh, in the early days in the 50s uh, lots of legendary comedy records, you know, I don't know, you know the, the Goons and Peter Sellers yeah. and Flanders and Swan and all these things were all made at Abbey Road. Very often under the supervision of, of a chap called George Martin, you know, who at that <laughs> stage was just another guy in there. Uh, and, uh, and the thing that George Martin did with tape was he realised that the work wasn't finished when the artist left the studio, very mm. often you carried on after you did things with it. You could add instruments, you could edit things, you could put sound effects on and so forth. And so I often think that the true air, the, the true kind of um, antecedent of Sergeant Pepper 
is Peter Sellers' songs for singing Sellers. You know, it, it's those records where yeah. where he created sound pictures just out of the out of what was available in, in the studio. Um, you talk about so, you talk about the work that it afterwards. They obviously took it seriously. I love the fact that the uh, people working there, the sound engineers, all wore white coats. Well, they they more complicated than that. Actually, they uh, they. The chaps who laid out the, the swept the studios and so forth wore brown coats. Right. The chaps who delivered the microphones and the equipment wore white coats. The engineers wore um, sports jackets and flannels and ties, unless they were working at the weekend, and then they were allowed to wear, to not bother with the tie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was very much in many senses it was like. It was like an old-fashioned school in in lots of ways, and I think it still is in an odd way. You know, when I go in there, I'm always amazed that you know you stand in the studio where the Beatles did all this stuff, and there's a park. It's a parquet floor. It's like a school gymnasium from the 1950s or something. Um, it's always got that kind of feeling about it. But it was it's a very formal organisation, but it had a lot in common with another formal organization that started life around about the same time which is the bbc right which is a very very traditional very kind of rules oriented very much like a school but at the same time had pockets of extraordinary creativity and also had a had a culture of liking bending rules and liking changing things you know so I think that worked enormously in the you know to the benefit of loads of acts because you know when the Beatles were in there and then Pink Floyd were in there and all these people they were always wanting to do something that had never been done before when they were making a record they always wanted to introduce some kind of sound that nobody had before and so they didn't know how to do this themselves really you know because they just played instruments what they relied upon was you know, people like George Martin, who was a trained musician, and and guys like Ken Townsend and loads of others who were kind of what you might call boffins, who would come up from the cellar with a soldering iron in the top pocket, you know, and would work out a way to wire up this thing to that thing yeah. to try some mad scheme that had never been tried before. Um, you know, so Ken Townsend invented famously ele- electronic double tracking just so that John Lennon, who hated his own voice, <laughs> um, didn't have to go and repeat, you know, and double track it himself. Uh, he came up with a, with this thing, um, which uh, George Martin explained to him in terms of it, it's it's like flanging which was an old joke from a goon's record <laughs> and and it, and that sound is still referred to as flanging by by you know recording engineers in yeah. studios all over the oh, world that's great right. Well, I mean, we've talked about some pretty famous names there but you also mentioned some less famous ones i'm thinking of a song called When an Old Cricketer Leaves the Crease, 1975, <laughs> I think. And you said it's one of your favourite Abbey Road recordings. I wonder, have you done the thought experiments? Uh, if that song had been recorded by Roy Harper anywhere else, would it have been as memorable? Oh, definitely not. No, I mean, because it's uh, it's um, it uses the Grimethorpe Colliery Band, you know, because 
It's a really untypical song. It's a ballad just about about cricket and uh, cricket and life, I suppose. Whatever you're talking about cricket, you're really talking about life. Yeah, um, yeah and, agreed. And, so, and somebody obviously said, what this needs is a brass band. And so nowadays you can't help thinking there would be a button you could press on your phone that would produce the sound of a brass band. Whereas in those days, they said, no, no, we're going to get the brass band. We're going to bring them all the way down from South Yorkshire, uh, you know, all 50 of them or whatever. And we're going to place them in Studio One and we're going to have a conductor and we're going to uh, going to have them accompany Roy Harper on this thing. And I think it's a masterful, masterful record. Because it's got all the, the, the kind of shivering qualities uh, of great records, you know, that very often great records are comforting and slightly sinister at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I think this is, this has got that, you know, it's not to do with whether it doesn't matter whether you like Roy Harper or not for that few moments, they, they produce something absolutely extraordinary, you know? And I think that's, it's just a great example of a great record, you know, because you get loads of people who aren't necessarily massively well-known, but they do one thing or two or three things uh, which, uh, which, which stand up many, many years later. I'm a huge Beatles fan. And uh, by the way, great uh, work getting Paul McCartney to write the foreword. That's a, that's a good go. Um, right. My, my um, entry into the Beatles was Twist and Shout. Um, actually, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Twist and Shout and saying to my dad, what is that song? <laughs> Um, and actually, that was quite a significant moment for the Beatles as well, right? And probably for the engineers watching when they recorded it. I think it was hugely significant. I actually think my current riff on the Beatles is, yeah. this is the greatest Beatles record. Oh. Never mind never mind talking about the songwriting. People talk about the songwriting with Beatles all the time. It's not to do with the songwriting. It's to do with them. It's to do with their ability to project their personality mm-hmm. onto record and twist and show you know there were two other hit versions of it in 1962 go and listen to them they're perfectly good and nothing like as good as the beatles and and you know it was only put on that first album because they were short of a song and uh, they've been recording all day because they were given a whole day to do an album in those days and uh, they said, we need to do one more. And so they were in the canteen at Abbey Road. And uh, what are we going to do next? And um, and and somebody, Alan Smith, who was there, who was a the was an enemy journalist, he said, why don't you do that thing that sounds like La Bamba? Mm. And they said, what's that? And he said, yeah, it was a twist and shout. So they went and did it. I think they did two takes. And John Lennon pretty much broke down through one, through the second take, because his voice was just kind yeah. of shot. But you go and listen to that record now, still, and the crumple that comes off that record is like nothing you'd ever heard before. You know, there is nothing from the 50s or the very early 60s that compares with that, you know. So that was the intriguing thing that, um, you know, there have been lots of great rock and roll records made in, in America, obviously, but very few made in Britain up until that point. But that, from that point on, there were loads. Love it. And the the engineers managed to capture just that sound. 
It managed to capture the Beatles' excitement mm. with their own success, if you know what I mean. I love you know, it. I love it. I think you know the kind of hilarious quality. They couldn't believe how well it was all going, and that <laughs> you know you could hear that in their yeah. records. Um, I, I don't want to leave you without mentioning James Clark, New Zealander James Clark, who achieved the holy grail of sound engineering in 2009 at Abbey Road demixing, and we could probably do a whole interview on that, but could you briefly tell us what he did and, and why it counted so much? Well, I mean, it's just this entire industry nowadays around old engineering techniques and particularly in the light of the Beatles. I mean, there's a book called Recording the Beatles, which is like hundreds of pounds. I don't know if you've ever seen this thing. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing. There is now more scholarship devoted to yeah. to uh, going into old Beatles recordings than there is into Shakespeare, it seems to be. It's <laughs> extraordinary. But, but what the, what he managed to do, what, what the, they've done subsequently, is that they can... They can, uh, you know, look at the look at the, look at the sound if you like. You know, they can look at the sound yeah. waves on the screen, and they could see which bits are coming, which instruments, or which particular sounds are being represented there. And then you can kind of start to take them apart and go back to the individual in- ingredients. People will argue long and hard as to whether it's entirely effective. Um, but I think this is the future that, um, you know, people nowadays, pe- people will, will in, in the very near future, I think, they will ha- be able to have access to all this stuff and they'll just be able to play with it to the heart's content, you know. But the great truth is that you never get anything better than the original thing, you know, because those things were mixed very often for, for well for mono you know for for a start mm. you know the beatles records they never they had no interest in stereo at all nobody listened to records in stereo <laughs> in the 1960s until the very end of the 1960s uh, you know so they were they were produced to be heard through through the media of the time you know um and i think very often if you play this stuff on a, on a kind of nat, on a contemporary state of the art um, you know, machine. What you do is you very often expose the weaknesses uh-huh. rather than anything else. You know what I mean? Because nothing is meant to bear that level of scrutiny, really. You know, if you want to enjoy the Beatles at their best, go and buy yourself if you can find it a, a kind of 1965 Dan Set record player <laughs> of the kind that you could take down to the beach. And, and go and find an old, you know, an old scratch mono forty-five. That—that's when you hear it in the way that people heard it at the time. But listen, the power of that stuff is such that people won't stop playing with it, you know, doing things with it, wanting to know more about it because it just—it has a. It has the power of myth about it, you know. And that's how that's how we get to listen to that concert at the Hollywood Bowl, August 23, 1964, I think, the only live recording, decent live recording of the Beatles. Um, man, we've barely scratched the surface, David. You've done a wonderful job with this book. It's called Abbey Road, the inside story of the world's most famous recording studio, and there are a whole lot more stories in the book. David, thank you for your time today. Thank you.